0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays.
1: When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary... And aren't his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honor. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus.
0: Well, good evening, everyone. Let me add my welcome. Quite a passage, isn't it? You'll, uh, you'll want to keep your Bible open this evening. We'll be having a look at those verses together in some detail. And um, uh, if it helps, there's just, uh, there's just a little bit of space on the bottom of the service sheet. If you're a scribbler, maybe that'll be somewhere you can just pop some notes down. Um, but um, I'm, going to, uh, I'm going to pray for us as we dive into this passage that God would help us. And so let's pray together. Jesus said these words in Matthew 13, blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see but did not see and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. And so our Father God, mindful of the privilege that we have that Jesus has revealed wonderful, glorious things that people for generations longed to see. We pray that you would give us eyes to see the truth in front of us and ears to hear it. Help us to be those who believe this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, here's a question. If the evidence for Jesus is as compelling as we think it is, if the eyewitness accounts of his life, his teachings, his miracles, are as convincing as we think that they are, why are there so many people who are not persuaded by them, who don't believe I'm um, sure um, all of us will know those who have rejected Christianity, because to be honest, they don't know the first thing about Jesus. You know, when they talk to you about the God that you don't, they don't believe in, you want to say, "Well, I don't believe in that God either." And it can be an exciting thing, actually, to be able to open up the Bible and to show them the real God, Jesus Christ, what he's really like. But of course, we'll know many people, if we're honest, who are quite familiar with the evidence about Jesus. Maybe they grew up in a Christian home, familiar with the gospel accounts, and yet somehow they're not gripped by them in their head and their heart. They're not convinced, not persuaded. They've not turned to Jesus and bowed the knee and said, I want you to be my king on the basis of what they have found there. Um, I think of my personal tutor when I was at university. Um, He grew up in a Christian family. It was obvious from the way that he talked that he knew the Bible well, and yet he'd be the first one to say that he didn't believe what it said really applied to him. He'd found the answers he was looking for in Plato and Hegel and Marx, and not in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And... It can be discouraging, can't it? As we think about the widespread proclamation of the message about Jesus, which we've been hearing about as we've been looking at Matthew 13 together, it can be discouraging to do that and to find that there are some, there are many, in fact, for whom the evidence just does not seem to convince them. Perhaps you've been um, reading one of the excellent Uncover Gospels with a friend over the last few months, and initially they seemed excited to look at who Jesus was and what he was all about, and yet they seem to have cooled as the months have gone on. And it can leave us wondering, "Did did I do it wrong? Is there more to it than just opening up the Bible and looking at what it says with someone? Is the evidence really as compelling as I think it is? Is it all in my head? It could be that you're here this evening, and actually you're looking into Jesus for the first time for yourself as an adult, and there's always a number here who are doing that, and let me say, if that's you, an especially warm welcome. We love to ask questions here and to grapple with the the, the passages of the Bible and to get into who the real Jesus is, but it might be that as you've looked into it, you sense there's something there, there's real historical evidence here. But if you're honest, one of the things that holds you back is the number of people who don't seem to be convinced by it. Maybe there are um, educated, intelligent, and powerful people you know who just aren't gripped by the Gospels. They've come to some other conclusion. And so it just gives you enough pause that it holds you back from wholeheartedly trusting and believing the person of Jesus that you meet in the Gospels What do we make of the fact that people see the evidence and don't believe? That's what the end of Matthew 13, the beginning of Matthew 14, is going to open up for us this evening. What do we do with that? And um, you will know, if you know Matthew's gospel at all, that the aim of his book, his eyewitness account of Jesus's life, is to convince us that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth and for us to be so convinced of that fact that we not only become his disciples, his followers, but we boldly go out to all nations making disciples of other people. That's how Matthew's gospel ends, with Jesus making that claim. And Matthew wants us to be persuaded that that is who Jesus is, to the point that we will go anywhere to tell anyone we can that that's who he is. And if you've been with us this term, we've been in Matthew 13 together, this major block of Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of heaven. If you've been here, you will know that Jesus has been teaching that the kingdom of heaven grows precisely through the widespread sharing of the message of the kingdom, that through that widespread sharing, it will grow to unimaginable greatness. It will be a kingdom that fixes all that is wrong with our world. And Jesus has said it's a kingdom that is so good that when you see the truth about it, you would willingly give up anything to be a part of it. Now, we've come to the end of Jesus's sort of block of teaching, the parables, if you like. Have a look at verse 53 with me, where we began. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. See, we're moving on from the teaching of Jesus to the next section of narrative about Jesus's life. And what Matthew wants to do for us over the next few chapters, certainly over the next few weeks as we get into Matthew 14 together, is unashamedly to convince us that when Jesus spoke about the kingdom of heaven, he spoke as the king of heaven, Matthew wants us to be utterly persuaded that Jesus is the king of that kingdom of which he spoke. And really, the high point of this section is just over the page in chapter 16 and verse 15. See, um, Jesus asks his disciples, he asks Peter, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Do you see, through this narrative, Matthew wants to move us to a point of decision. He wants to convince us to be able to answer that question as Peter does. Who do you say I am? You are the Christ, the King of the kingdom of heaven, the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. He wants to show us that that is who Jesus is, that we will be thoroughly persuaded But in Jesus' teaching in Matthew 13, he's also showed us that the kingdom of heaven will bring about a great division. There'll be many who do not accept the rule of the king, who push him away, who reject him, who hold him at arm's length, and who hate him. And in this next narrative section, Matthew is going to show us how that played out in the life of Jesus. Here this evening, we see two examples Of people who see the evidence that Jesus is the king of heaven and earth, the Christ, the son of God, but who reject him. And Matthew is going to hold up a window to them and help us to see why they are not persuaded by the plain evidence of their eyes and ears. He's going to show us in practice why the great division occurs. And so this evening, uh, there are a number of reasons that come up through this section, but this evening we're going to see two of the reasons why people reject the evidence for Jesus, or at least why they did in Jesus' day, and we'll see how contemporary they are. Um, Here here, here they are, let me give you them at the top. Um, An unwillingness to believe and an inability to repent are the two reasons we'll see this evening. An unwillingness to believe and an inability to repent. And so first of all, come with me to Jesus' hometown and see an unwillingness to believe the evidence. Verse 54, coming to his hometown, Jesus began uh, began teaching the people in their synagogue and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? They're asking the key question of the section. Where did Jesus get this wisdom and this power from? But notice... They're not denying the reality of the miracles that Jesus has done. There's no denial of the evidence here. How could there be? These are people who've seen and heard. um, Jesus, heal the sick with a word. Um, Jesus, uh, the man who could calm a raging storm just by speaking. Ever tried that up in the peaks on a, a blustery, stormy weekend? Just saying, calm, be still. Well, just try it if you want to. And yet here was a man who had. There was no denying the evidence. Here was a man who had cast out evil powers just by a word and who had gone to the, um, the funeral of a dead girl at her house and just spoken a word and raised her from the dead. And I wouldn't recommend trying that one, to go to a funeral and say, no, it's fine. She'll, she'll be okay, she's just sleeping. But Jesus did And then, with a word, he'd raised her from the dead. Undeniable power. Miracles that demonstrate that he is, well, God come to be king. For who else could do these things? And there's no denial that he did the things that they saw and heard. The question they ask is where did he get this power? Verse 55 Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. And at one level, I think we probably want to say this is understandable, isn't it? Um, I had a school friend who, when we were sixth formers, um, uh, this is the absolute truth, he tried to iron a shirt while he was wearing it. Okay, now for me, it is hard to reconcile that 17-year-old with the man who is now a consultant doctor in a hospital that will not be disclosed, I think for everyone's benefit. But it is hard for us, isn't it? Here are people who are saying, Jesus, we were in nursery with Jesus. We did our GCSEs with him. You know, as an adult, when we needed furniture built, we went to his carpenter's workshop to have it built. And you're telling me this man is the son of God. And yet when you stop and think, it's less understandable than it initially appears. We know from Luke's gospel that Jesus had an incredible wisdom and knowledge of the scriptures from a young age. We know consistently from the gospel accounts that those closest to him said he was a man who had never sinned. So now imagine that that friend from school who never said a harsh word, never was unkind to anyone, never acted in an unloving way, but was positively, constantly good to everyone he met. And more than that, they'd seen his miraculous powers, what Matthew elsewhere calls the miracles of the Christ, the clear demonstration that that unusually good, unusually wise young man was the king of heaven come to earth. They had seen all the evidence they needed, and yet verse 57, they took offense at him. Uh, Literally, they were scandalized by him. They stumbled over him. It's not that they couldn't believe the evidence in front of them. They wouldn't believe it. They were deeply biased and said to themselves, we know what Jesus is all about. And so they were unwilling to follow the facts where they led. Unwilling to look at the evidence in a reasonable way and conclude what it clearly pointed to. They found the idea that Jesus was the king of heaven frankly offensive, scandalising, Uh, My cousin a few years ago, she's a research scientist, and a few years ago she went to work for a particular um, uh, lab in the pharmaceutical sector, and um, she told me how she felt enormous pressure to get the results that her company were looking for. You'd run a test, you wouldn't get the results they were looking for from that experiment. Well, run it again. Wrong results, run it again. And she walked out of that job after just, um, just a few months because she couldn't handle what was obviously unethical practice. Here we see that and we know it's unethical, unscientific, unreasonable in any walk of life. And yet here people apply exactly that standard to Jesus. They're deeply biased. They won't look at the evidence that points to him being the king of heaven. They don't want that outcome. And so they take offense at him. They say to themselves, we know what Jesus is about. We know his mother and his brothers. And it can't be that. See, it's a deeply unreasonable, uh, irrational, and biased response to the evidence that we have here. And it's a surprisingly contemporary one, isn't it? Because although when people haven't grown up in the same town as Jesus, how often do we see that people see evidence clear as day that Jesus could do things that only God could do, and yet they say to themselves, Well, I know what Jesus is about, just a good moral teacher, nothing more than a prophet, a religious teacher. His disciples just got out of hand describing him. I know what Jesus is about, not the evidence. And they hold it out at arm's length. Now maybe that you're here this evening and you grew up in a Christian family, grew up familiar with the evidence in front of you, but you've never come to the point of accepting Jesus as your king, as the king of heaven. Let me ask you, could it be not because the evidence is lacking, but because you don't want him to be your king. I was talking to someone just a few weeks ago about how they'd grown up in a Christian home but always had a cynical attitude towards the Bible until someone challenged them to to stop assuming they knew what Jesus would be about and to look at the evidence that was actually there. And wonderfully, he's become a Christian in the last few weeks because of it. Praise God for that. But notice the warning in this passage. Have a look at verse 58 with me. And Jesus did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Do you see, because of their unbelief, because of their unwillingness to follow the evidence where it led them, where it ought to lead all of us, Jesus just pulls back. if we play with jesus well he won't play if we're not willing then jesus takes the evidence away it's the same principle we saw with the parables a few weeks ago that um if we're not willing to dig in and listen hard then the meaning will always escape us and if we're not willing to take the evidence as it stands then the evidence will be taken away from us Uh, We see it again at the end of the next section. In um, in verse 14, verse 13, just look down to it. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew. You see, if we play with Jesus, if we're biased, if we're unwilling to accept the evidence in front of us, then the warning is that Jesus will take himself and the evidence away. And so here is the first reason, an unwillingness to believe, an irrational, biased, um, unwillingness to accept Jesus as king. But then secondly, um, we, get this, um, we get this passage about Herod, and I've called this an, an inability to repent. Let me show you what I mean. Here again was someone who had heard the evidence about Jesus. Look down at verse one with me. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus he heard of the miracles the healings the power the authority the king of heaven walking on earth and he said to his attendants this is John the Baptist he's risen from the dead that is why miraculous powers are at work in him See again, here is someone who rejects the evidence, that claim, the claim that Jesus is God's king and he comes to his own sort of weird and superstitious explanation. He adds up two and two and he makes something like 110. He says, this must be John the Baptist come back from the dead. And Matthew is gonna take us back into the details of what happened to John the Baptist in this next little section. And here's a question for you. Here's something I've pondered over the last few weeks. Why does Matthew include these details about um, Herod's birthday and the beheading and John the Baptist? I mean, the gospel would move along quite happily if he stopped at verse two and then carried right on at verse 13. Why the gory details? And they are gory details, aren't they? It's an ugly passage, a sordid one. And it must be here because Matthew wants us to stop and think about the reasons that Herod rejected the truth about Jesus. He's going to give us again an anatomy of why the evidence is rejected here as he heard it from John the Baptist. On the surface of it, Herod is a powerful man, isn't he? Um, tetrarch means um, the king of, um, of roughly a quarter of his father's kingdom. So he's not quite as powerful as Herod the Great, the one who'd ordered the massacre of the children back at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. But he's a powerful king. You know, he's like a sort of um, mafia figure here or something, isn't he? He's able to have someone arrested at will and killed just at his word. A powerful and influential man, And yet again and again in this little passage, we see that he's a man who is trapped and unable to act on the evidence in front of him. A man trapped. Have a look at verse 3 with me. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Mark goes into more detail about this in his gospel. He tells us that Herod loved to hear John the Baptist's message, but he hated when John the Baptist spoke about Herodias. And we see it here, don't we? Verse four, John had been saying to him, John had been preaching that it's not lawful for you to have her. You see, Herod, um, we know from the history books, had, um, had an adulterous affair with his brother Philip's wife, and then he'd taken her away and, um, and um, they'd got divorced and he'd married her. And John the Baptist had been preaching the kingdom of heaven and preaching that Herod needed to change his mind about this relationship to realize that it was unlawful. But Herod hated that. A man trapped in this relationship, trapped in his desire for Herodias, loved to hear John the Baptist, knew there was truth in it, but there was a sin that he couldn't let go of. He wouldn't turn away from. Again, in verse 5, we see a man trapped. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. Trapped by fear of other people, how will they react to his actions? A man trapped, verse six. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Is he trapped here by his lust? Here is the daughter of his partner the, uh, the commentaries uh, reckon that she's between about 12 and 14 when this happens. She dances for him. It's like a sordid stag do or something like that. He's so pleased, he makes this promise. I'll give you whatever you ask. Trapped by his desire to play the man, to look impressive before the crowds. And we see what kind of um, woman her mother was, don't we, in verse 8. Prompted by her mother She said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And the king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in prison and his head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. Trapped, unwilling to go back On the promise he'd made in public, unwilling to go back on his previous statements and his promises, trapped by this immoral relationship, trapped by his fear of what people think of him. And it ends up with the messenger who'd brought him the truth with his head ripped off and brought in on a plate. It's an ugly scene, isn't it? Imagine going to this party and then going home to your housemate or your, um, your parents, or your husband, or your wife, and explaining what had just happened. You know, things got pretty out of hand where, where, <laughs> when a man's head was brought in on a plate and put down in front of us. I mean, it's a horrifying, ugly, and violent rejection of the truth. But it doesn't come about because Herod knows that it isn't true, because the reports aren't persuasive. It doesn't come about because John the Baptist was saying something less than the full truth about who Jesus is, the king of heaven. It comes about because he is unwilling to turn away from his sin, unwilling to be embarrassed in front of other people, unwilling to turn back on things he said on the past, unwilling to break free from lust and his desire to play the man. Do you see, it's not about evidence here, this sordid scene, but about what's going on in Herod's heart, unable to repent. I had a friend in my um, in my small group uh, at my last church. Uh, he was a heavy smoker. And I'm not saying that smoking is something you necessarily need to repent of, but he often spoke about how he wanted to give up his addiction to cigarettes. He wanted to to quit entirely. He talked to me about this almost every week. But when it came down to it, he was very resistant to any of the steps that would have actually um, led to him quitting. Very resistant to anyone who would talk to him about the truth about smoking or would seek to help him in any way. See, he said he wanted to quit, but in his heart he couldn't bring himself to turn away from his addiction. And here is Herod, who hears the truth but cannot bring himself to turn away from his lust and his fear of man, from his desire to play the man, and from his desire to um, uphold the things he said in the past. One preacher put it like this Peer pressure, home influence, popularity, desire to play the man, these are all powerful dissuasives from faith in Christ. And they are, aren't they? We don't just see this in the first century. We see this today, don't we? I think of a friend of mine who, who loved the Bible. We used to meet regularly to read it together. Um, he, was, um, he was even um, doing a theology degree because he wanted to get into the Bible more, but he had a relationship with a girl that he knew wasn't right and that he wasn't willing to walk away from. And so he walked away from Jesus and the Bible instead. I think of how many friends I've known who have had a sneaking suspicion that there was more to Jesus, but who cared more about what other people thought of them than where the evidence pointed. And we will have experienced this, won't we? Now listen, as I said, it might be that you're here this evening and you're just just looking into the evidence for Jesus. You say... I'd love to be convinced. I would love for Matthew to show me that Jesus is the one with all authority in heaven and on earth, but I'm not there yet. It might be that you feel the nagging doubt of the crowds who, who maybe have looked at the evidence and not been persuaded, and you think, am I wrong to think there might be something in it? Well, if that's you, will you hear the warning and encouragement of this text this evening? See, the encouragement is that it's not that the evidence is lacking when people reject it. It's not an intellectual question or a question of evidence, but a question of the heart. Very often, an unwillingness to believe or an inability to turn away from sin. Now, Jesus doesn't say that we have to sort ourselves out to come to him. He says we can come to him and be forgiven. But he does say that we have to come to him as king, Willing to change our minds about our lives and bow the knee to him. And not everyone is willing to do that, but will you, will you look into it and let the evidence take you where it leads? That's the encouragement of this text. Don't be put off by the crowds. The next couple of weeks, we're gonna see two of the most profound and powerful miracles of the life of Jesus. Solid evidence that he is the king of heaven. Come back, keep digging, And leave behind your biases. I beg you. But I guess for many of us here this evening, we'll be thoroughly persuaded that Jesus is the King of Heaven. And yet, are we? Because I guess most of us would have had that experience of opening the Bible with someone and talking to them about Jesus. And it feels like um, the evidence just washes over them. Like they're made of Teflon or something. Nothing sticks. They're not persuaded. Jesus is held at arm's length. Or they've got some other explanation. And we come away thinking, man, is the evidence as persuasive as I think it is? Is Is it just all in my head? Or maybe I need something more than just the eyewitness accounts of the Bible to persuade people. What can I find that will really sort of um, twist their arm into the kingdom or something like that? And, And Matthew's here to show us that it's not the problem of the evidence when people won't believe, but the problem of the human heart. We can be thoroughly persuaded that Jesus is the king of heaven and earth even when the crowds don't receive it, even when there are those who've looked at the evidence and turned away. The problem is not with the evidence, but with the willingness of our hearers to believe. And so will we be people who pray for our hearers that Jesus wouldn't take himself away from them, but that he would open their eyes and their ears and their hearts and keep speaking? Let me pray. Well, our Lord God, we pray that you would keep us from the attitude of heart that is unwilling to believe or unable to repent. As we prayed at the beginning, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear who Jesus really is. Would you make us so persuaded that he is the one who has authority over heaven and earth that we would trust him as his disciples and go to all nations proclaiming the message of Jesus that we might make disciples in his name. Amen.